Good morning, everyone. How are you? So good to see your faces. As Dan said, my name is Brad Nelson, but probably the more important backdrop to who I am are these people right here. This is my wife, Trisha, my three daughters, Braylon, Clara, Charlotte. Now, some of you might be thinking, three daughters. How's he going to pay for all those weddings? <laughs> you, my friend, are on the same page as me, all right? That's my family, and uh, I was a pastor for 20 years, 10 years in Michigan, another 10 years in Florida, and uh, on the backside of COVID, we transitioned out of pastoral ministry and into the organization that I'm a part of now called Walking the Text, and we have the privilege of taking groups of people to Bible lands, Israel, Turkey, walking in the very places that Jesus walked and uncovering the kind of the cultural, historical, geographical context of the Bible in a way that just makes it begin to explode with meaning. Um, so I really hope that if that's something that the Spirit is stirring in you that you will follow up on, I would love to hike with you in Israel, and that's actually where I met your pastor, Dan, and his wife, Carolina, here. You see them. I snapped this picture on one of our morning devotionals on the shore of the Dead Sea, and so you can see uh, the Masada, which is one of Herod, King Herod the Great's desert mountaintop fortresses in the background. But you know what's funny about trips like this? If you've ever done a road trip with somebody, you don't just cover a lot of miles with your feet you cover a lot of miles with your heart. You really grow a deep sense of connection with total strangers in just the span of two weeks, and it's often in a way that can just totally change the trajectory of your faith. So I hope that you will uh, look into joining us on that trip. <clears throat> I wanna start in kind of an odd place to th this morning, continuing this series on the week that changed everything, we're going to talk about the cross, but I want to start with a quote from this guy, Mark Twain. Says this, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. It's what you think you know, what you think you have figured out that eventually comes back to haunt you. Now, this quote perfectly captures why for me, as a pastor over 20 years, I always felt such a check in my spirit at Christmas and Easter. Because when people come to church at Christmas and Easter, they know what they're gonna hear. They know we're talking about the birth of Jesus, the manger, they know we're talking about the cross and the empty tomb, and for some reason, as human beings, we just have this really bad habit of assuming because we're familiar with something, we know what it means. And so we take it, we set it aside and think, oh, I've got that one mastered, and then we don't hear anything new. My friends, that is not how we're supposed to be in relationship with the Bible. The Bible isn't something you master. The Bible is something you allow to master you. And this requires coming to it with an openness an open-handedness and a willingness to be surprised by it. And that's what I wanna invite you to today as we consider Jesus's last words on the cross, that if you'll come to this with an open mind, you might find that the cross will keep surprising you. 
that what Jesus accomplishes on the cross is so cosmic and sweeping in its implications that it's going to take us a lifetime to wrap our arms around and we'll never get to the bottom of it. But I wanna take you just maybe a couple of clicks deeper this morning by looking at an overlooked detail, often overlooked detail, with Jesus' last words on the cross from John's gospel. So turn with me, if you've got a Bible or on your smartphone, to John chapter 19. And we're gonna look today at uh, Jesus' last words in John chapter 19. And while you're turning there, just some, some background about John. Interestingly, 90% of John's gospel contains material not included in the other gospels. John's gospel is really, really different. And one of the ways that it's different is with Jesus's last words on the cross. We're gonna see that the last words of Jesus in the gospel of John are different from the last words in Matthew and Mark's gospel. And that, as a good Bible reader, should get you asking the question, why is that? Why is this gospel so different? So what I wanna do is give you a little background on John. And so you know, because you've been journeying uh, through this week that changed everything with Pastor Dan, that John was one of Jesus's inner disciples. He had his 12, but then he had three inner disciples, Peter, James, and John. And uh, John and Peter have a little bit of a rivalry going. If you read through John's gospel, you get to chapter 20, 21, you see it's really important for John that you know he beat Peter in a race to the tomb. And he keeps repeating it to the point where you're like, okay, dude, we get it, you're faster, all right. Um, and so that's kind of John. But if you look at John's life, like kind of in timeline form, you see something like this. We think he's probably born sometime around 10 AD. And so we also think that John was probably Jesus's youngest disciple. And so if Jesus is executed somewhere around 30, John spends the next 36 years as a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see little glimpses of John here and there, but he's not the main character. I mean, he shows up, but we don't know a ton about him. But then somewhere around 66 AD, there's a rebellion. There is a rebellion in Judea, and the Jews kind of throw off their shackles of Rome, and Rome sends its legions to Judea to crush this rebellion, and they slowly kind of tighten the noose around Jerusalem. And so we think that sometime around 66... John, who had been entrusted with the care of Jesus' mother Mary, John and Mary relocate from Jerusalem to Asia Minor or present-day Turkey. And it's here where John is going to live out the rest of his days in and around Ephesus, and he is going to be the chief shepherd to all of these Christian communities, all of these churches in Asia Minor. And so that's kind of the backdrop. John is a pastor, he's a leader, he's an elder statesman. And what we're gonna see today is that some scholars will argue that John's gospel was written in the late 60s. Most scholars are gonna say, no, 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 it was written in the 90s. 
But what all scholars agree on is that John's gospel was not the first gospel. That's Mark. So by the time John writes his gospel, his churches already know the Jesus story. They already know what happens. And it's as though John says, I'm going to tell you the same story, but I'm going to tell it in a different way because there are some things I want you to pay attention to. Now, those dates about when John's gospel was written, they're actually kind of important because if John's gospel was written in the late 60s, it would have been written during the reign of Emperor Nero. And some of you, I'm sure, can remember from high school history class or college a little bit about this guy. This was not a good person. In 64 AD, the biggest fire to ever sweep through Rome destroyed most of the city. And Nero needed a scapegoat, and he chose the Christians. And so the fire got blamed on this group of Jesus followers, and a persecution ends up breaking out in Rome against the Christians. You can read accounts of Nero taking Christians and crucifying them along the city streets, and at night when the sun would go down, would light their corpses on fire to light the city streets as people walked. So that's, that's just a taste of Nero. Well, sometime between 64 and 68 AD, on Nero's watch, the apostle Peter is crucified upside down. Now, Peter wrote the letters, 1st and 2nd Peter, to the churches in Asia, to John's congregation. So they are aware of his leadership. They have a deep regard for Peter. So not only are the Christians being persecuted under Nero, but their main leader after Jesus, Peter gets crucified upside down. We don't know about the date. Could have been 64, could have been 67, could have been 68. The apostle Paul gets beheaded by Emperor Nero. Now, Paul spent almost three years in Ephesus. John's congregation is deeply familiar with Paul. They know him. They trust him. They regard him as a leader, and Nero puts him to death too. So imagine it's the late 60s. You're being persecuted. Your leaders are dropping like flies. I mean, that is the backdrop. Now, if John is writing in the 90s, it happens under the leadership of Emperor Domitian. And Domitian is not much better than Nero. Domitian had a massive ego and was one of the few emperors who, in his lifetime, demanded that people refer to him as Kyrios and Soter, Lord and Savior. He demanded obeisance and foot kissing, people to kiss his feet when they came into his presence. I mean, he was an ego maniac and a persecution against the Christians broke out on his watch as well. According to Christian tradition, Domitian had John boiled in oil and failing to kill him, sent him into exile on the island of Patmos where John most certainly would have done hard labor. He probably would have endured beatings, probably went without food, 
And it's here on Patmos where John receives the vision that you and I read as the letter of Revelation. So whether John's gospel is written in the 60s or whether it's written in the 90s, things are really, really bad. There's another thing that Domitian was kind of known for, and that was the imperial cult. The Roman emperors found that one of the most effective ways to keep everybody in this massive empire on the same page was to organize them around the worship of Caesar as Lord. Caesar as the center of your universe. So if you lived in Asia Minor and you were a basket weaver, or you were a bronze worker, or you were a leather worker, you would be in what was called a guild, kind of like a union with other workers in your town. And frequently, these guilds would have feasts, they would have meals, and a part of that meal is a moment where you pour out a libation offering to Caesar as Lord. Now, imagine that you're a Christian who has turned your back on all of that and who now believes that Jesus is Lord and you show up at that meal and you don't pour out the drink offering. Your coworkers start to zoom in on you. Dude, what are you doing? Are you trying to get us in trouble? You're gonna get us in trouble with Rome. You gotta participate. The imperial cult would put on all kinds of feasts, games, holidays, meals, parades, and the public was expected to show up. Now, I lived for about 10 years in Central Florida in a town called Ocala, and there's a thing at Christmas time called Light Up Ocala, where the mayor and the one local celebrity, John Travolta, get together, and there's a parade, and then there's a moment where we're gonna plug in all the Christmas lights, and the downtown is gonna light up, and everybody's like, ha, ha. But this is the kind of thing you gotta imagine. Before John Travolta and the mayor plug in the lights, the mayor says, and now citizens, we will pause for a moment to honor our Lord and Savior, Emperor Domitian. Please take a knee. What happens if you're a follower of Jesus? and you stay standing. My friends, that is the historical situation if John is writing in the 90s. Whether John is writing in the 60s, whether he's writing in the 90s, the situation is the same. John's congregations are suffering. And John writes this gospel and he says, I know you know the story, but I've gotta tell it to you again. And I wanna tell it to you in a particular way because there's something I need you to see about the way that Jesus suffers so that you know how to walk faithfully in your own suffering. And the way that John does this, the way that we can begin to appreciate this is through a, a Jewish kind of teaching technique that I wanna to talk to you about here in a minute. But before we do that, Let's just zero in on this difference between the last words in John's gospel for Jesus on the cross and the last words in Matthew and Mark. So in Matthew and Mark, 
Jesus' last words in Aramaic are, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, a number of scholars have called these words the cry of desolation or the cry of abandonment. And the idea of the cry of desolation goes something like this. When Jesus takes on our sin, the sins of the world, God, who is his father, hates sin and cannot be in the presence of sin. And so as Jesus suffers and dies on the cross, God, his father, turns his face away, turns his back on Jesus and abandons Jesus on the cross. The image of the cry of desolation is something a little like this. How many of you have seen the movie Platoon? It's been a long time ago. It's a much older movie. And this is a seminal scene near the end of the film where one of the main characters, Elias, is betrayed by one of his fellow soldiers and left behind. And so as his platoon flies away in a helicopter, they look down and they see him surrounded by the enemy where he dies abandoned and alone and betrayed without stretched arms. My friends, most of us have been given this image of the cross. But did you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is a direct quote from the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus was quoting the Bible as he died. And Matthew and Mark catch this, and what John is going to do, even though he uses different last words, he's going to bookend the same point that Matthew and Mark are making with Jesus' last words. And in order for us to appreciate that, we have to know about this Jewish teaching style called remez. Let me hear you say remez. Remez is Hebrew, it means hint. So um, one of the things that's very different about Jesus's world than our world is that most of the Jewish men and women around Jesus in the first century had vast portions of the Hebrew Bible committed to memory. So much committed to memory that Jesus could just make a quick reference to a passage and his audience would be able to fill in the rest, kind of like the way we do with movie quotes with one another. Or if I say to you, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Boy, you got it strong right there. Well done, sir. Apple a day keeps the doctor away. Yes, that's remez. Now, when my <laughs> oldest daughter was three years old, my wife was giving her a bath one day and she's splashing in the water and sees a cup on the side of the tub and she says to my wife, give me that cup. My wife, who is not a woman to be trifled with, says, give me that cup. Gives her a chance. She says, now? <laughs> no, give me that cup. And again, she, she looked with this confused look and like a good three-year-old church kid, she responded, in the life of Jesus? <laughs> no, give me that cup, please, please. My wife was trying to do remez with her. Friends, Jesus is doing remez on the cross. 
He's teaching the Bible right up to the very end. Matthew and Mark catch it, and so does John, and John brings the whole thing full circle. So what I want to do is walk you through Psalm 22, which Jesus is quoting, and I want you to see the parallels. And in order to do that, I want to introduce you to my middle daughter, Clara, who has come with me on this trip and has braved the mountains and done lots of hiking with me this week. Everybody, could you say hi to Clara? <clears throat> All right. So Psalm 22, 1, we already caught that reference in Matthew and Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What I want to do now is just kind of skip ahead in the psalm to verse 14 and start reading there. And we get this. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, melting within me. Now listen to these words from John 19, 33 and 34. <laughs> but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. So they don't break his legs, his bones are intact, his side is pierced, water pours out. That is Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. Now listen to verse 15. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof, roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. Now listen to John 19, 28 and 29. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. Ah, you see what John is doing. Now listen to verse 16. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. And listen to John 19, 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. John wants us to see that as Jesus dies, as he suffers, he is living out, he's journeying through Psalm 22, and it just gets one better. But could we say thank you to Clara first? Thank you, baby. All right, let me read the rest of Psalm 22 to you. Verse uh, 19 picks up, O Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength, come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword, spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen, and then the psalm turns. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. 
He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship Bow before him, all who are mortal, all whose lives end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything. And then we get this last line, these three words. They will hear about everything he has Done. In Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word asa, and it is in the perfect tense and can also be translated, he has done it. Yeah. He has done it. My friends, it is finished. It's the same meaning in Hebrew. It is finished. John wants you to see as Jesus suffers his supreme confidence in God. Now, if you are hurting, if you are suffering in the image of your crucified Lord is this, do you find that comforting? My friends, this is not the image John gives to us of Jesus on the cross. The image that John gives us of Jesus on the cross is something more like this. On the cross, Jesus' last words aren't a cry of abandonment. They're a cry of confidence. Amen. See, so often when we suffer, when we go through hardship, when we're challenged, we buy into this lie that suffering is evidence of God's absence. Well, something must be wrong. I, I must not be doing it right. God must not be with me because surely it would be going differently if God were with me. But my friends, what we discover more often than not is a deeper truth, a truth that's maybe a little harder to wrap our minds around, and that is the truth that faithfulness in the midst of suffering is very much evidence of God's presence. And so, if you'll let it, the cross invites us to suffer like Jesus. Listen to these words from Bible Project founder Tim Mackey. He says that every day we need to be reminded that following Jesus is hard and that great tests and trials will come our way, and to remind ourselves that they are not signs the Father has abandoned us, they are actually paradoxically signs the Father is with us and that he will deliver us through in some way. My friends, if you will let it, the cross is an invitation to suffer with the same kind of confidence that Jesus did. To journey through your hardships with that same confidence and faithfulness that your God will deliver you. Now, what does this look like? 
This is a, a writer named Frederick Beekner. He passed away last year. When he was a boy, his father committed suicide, and he found his father in the garage. And that loss loomed large over his life like a gaping wound. A number of years ago, as an adult, he was invited to come share his life story with a group at a conference center in Texas, and he talked about this loss. And after he shared about this, he was shaking hands with people in the foyer, and somebody came up to him and said, well, you've had a lot of suffering in your life, but you've sure been a good steward of it. And that phrase just bowled him over, the stewardship of pain. My friends, it should not surprise you when you follow a crucified Lord by whose stripes you are healed, when your own giftedness and goodness to heal the world comes from your own pain. There is an intimate connection from the things we suffer and the gifts we bear to the world. That's what it means to take up your cross. What does it look like for you to suffer faithfully like Jesus? by being a good steward of your pain. I don't think anybody in recent memory, to my knowledge, embodies this quite as well as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And near the end of his life, he gave a sermon called, But If Not. The sermon was on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace and their confidence before their captors, that if you throw us in this furnace, our God has the power to deliver us, and we trust him for that. But if not, if it is our God's wisdom not to, we will remain faithful. And King talked about the difference between an if faith and a though faith. God, if you protect me, God, if you bless me, God, if you guarantee my safety, God, if she apologizes first, then I'll move towards her. But then there's the though faith. That's the faith of Jesus. And I want to leave you with Dr. King's words because he says it in a way that I just can't. And the though faith uh, says, though things go wrong, Though evil is temporarily triumphant. Yes, sir. Though sickness comes and, and the cross looms. Yes. Nevertheless, I'm going to believe anyway and I'm going to have faith anyway. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled. Though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Don't ever think you're by yourself. Go on to jail if necessary, but you never go alone. Take a stand for that which is right. The world may misunderstand you and criticize you, but you never go alone. Walk with him this morning and believe in him and do what is right. Amen. And he'll be with you even Lord, 
until the consummation of the ages. Yes, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I've felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul, but I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me. Would you stand with me? I want to invite you, if you would, to just take your hands and join me in like a posture of openness and pray with me. Gracious God, we want the faith of Jesus. We want the life of Jesus to flow through us. Jesus, we hold all our suffering, our ache, and our heartbreak open before you. We ask you to give us your faithfulness that we never go alone that even in those moments that feel like crucifixion, the Father has not turned away, but the Father has been faithful. God, give us your gospel eyes to see the goodness and the beauty and the resurrection that you are sowing so that we can experience the suffering of the cross with the same faithfulness as you did. God, into your hands, we commend our spirit.